upcoming events, and Normandy Records merchandise, visit our website at normandyrecords.com. Thanks for listening to the Normandy Records podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Normandy Records podcast. I am your host, Eric Sanchez, and I hope that you are all doing well. I hope that you're all safe. Um, Here in Los Angeles and California, we're about to enter the third phase of the COVID-19 stay-at-home order, which is going to open up a lot of businesses like gyms and restaurants. And I find that very interesting. I'm a very cautious person, so I don't know how I am going to react to that or how I'm going to truly embrace that, if at all. But... um, but yeah, so that's good. I mean, it has to be a good sign, right? It has to be a sign of, you know, progress in that sense. And speaking of progress, uh, America keeps on going as it should. I think we've reached a tipping point, And this is what you're going to see. Like, really, I don't think this should uh, let up anytime soon. It's very, it's forcing people to at least think or or like really acknowledge a lot of the things that people have been trying to deny for a long time. So that is a very beautiful thing. And it's very important to do your research and to really, really understand how you can contribute if you can't do it financially, if you want to continue practicing social distancing, you don't want to go out to the demonstrations. Do your research in the meantime so when you are prepared to contribute, you can do it in the best way possible. There are plenty of organizations out there. There are plenty of of um, people who, you know, organize uh, different type of events or, or just educational platforms to be able to, you know, embrace and include people of many different cultures to to make this a much larger thing that can continue to grow moving forward. Um, With that being said, I just really hope that you're all in a good mental space and that you're all just, you know, talking to your friends and, and really, really in embracing what's happening right now in the country and uh, you know, keep it positive really because, because this is a positive thing. You may not, you may not think so, but it is a positive thing. So, um, yeah, so today's episode is going to feature a part one of an interview with Sister Mantos, and uh, I'm very excited. They are one of the coolest, really most punk rock artists in the Los Angeles music scene, and I am very excited to show you this interview. Um, this is part one of a two-part interview featuring Oscar of Sister Mantos, and the first part we talk a lot about um, the influences behind uh, what started Sister Mantos and a lot of uh, their upbringing. So uh, this should give you a lot of context and a lot of background information on a really great band. Uh, go out and listen to their records. They're out on all streaming platforms. They just released some of their older content. And this is a, a, a truly, truly, truly cool, awesome interview. Thank you to Oscar. Thank you to Sister Mantos, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe, share with your friends, and please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, and enjoy this episode, part one with Sister Mantos.
Oscar, welcome to the Normandy Records podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, One thing I actually want to clear up, and you can choose not to answer it, but your, your full name is Oscar Santos? Yeah, full name is Oscar Miguel Santos, yes. Okay. Is Mr. Uh, sorry, Sister Mantos a play on Mr. Santos? It is, yes, it, totally. So um, the story <laughs> behind the name, after I graduated from, uh, sorry, pouring myself some water here. Sorry. Right, after right. I graduated from uh, UCLA in like 2002, the, the, basically the, the gig that I was doing was teaching. Um, and I taught at some community centers and... Then I was like, okay, I'm going to teach in schools, and and I started teaching in schools. So basically, 2005, I started teaching at a high school, and the students would, um, you know, because high school students are always like picking on people, causing trouble. Yeah, they they started they started to call me. Um, there was two there was two students basically who were actually really cool. They were really into good music. Um, they were just like the cooler kids. And uh-huh. one of them started calling me uh, Sister Mantos as a play on Mr. Mantos. Um, but the funny thing was that I didn't, I didn't take it as an offense because, um, you know, the other thing about myself is like, I'm a queer person. And um, that means that sometimes I express myself in ways that could be, you know, considered femme or not femme or masculine or what I, whatever. I'm kind of always going between two worlds. Right, right. So the so for me, when the student was doing it, I mean, the student was trying to pick on me because of the way that I talked or the way that I was acting. Right. But I was like, I was like, well, actually, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and then and then so I just kind of I laughed it off. And then what ended up happening is that the year after that, the next group of students in the high school class, some of them have had already heard that that was my nickname. And then they started to use it as well. The cooler kids, is that's what they called it. Right, me. right, right. Um, even though at first, again, it was the cool kid trying to make fun of me. Uh, it became a cool nickname that you, would, that you embraced, huh? I, I totally embraced it. And I had, I had no, I had, it was actually really cool. You know, some schools nowadays are very open and very, you know, uh, create a culture in the school where, where that would make more sense. This was actually a pretty conservative neighborhood that I had been, I had ended up getting a teaching job in. Mm-hmm. So it was a very special and weird, cool thing that was happening. That's also when I started to make music on my own. I was had always been in bands like ever since I was in high school. But when I was, when in the year of two thousand and eight, I was like, well, I'm going to try to make a solo album, and that way I don't have to deal with a band and I don't have to carry equipment because I was really over carrying amps. Like Absolutely. that was literally my. <laughs> that was like my one thing. So then when it came to make the record, I made these songs. And when I was finished, I was like, what, what am I going to name this? <laughs> and then I was, and then I was, you know, I was talking to my students about it. Like we would, you know, we were always very friendly and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm making music at home. I don't know what to name it. And then one of the students was like, well, why don't you just call it sister Mantos? That's your other name. And I was like, Oh yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> so then, That's super so, awesome. That's so super was, awesome. Yeah, it was just uh, it was that silly of the I, beginning. That's, yeah, that's super cool. I'm actually I'm 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 glad. I I always told myself the next time that I saw you, I'd ask you that. So uh, it's pretty cool that that you gave me the story behind that because I've always been curious. Um, I've expressed this to you, uh, Sister Mantos. To me, is a super cool project uh, that has layers and layers of of just very artistic output that i hope people are paying attention to i consider you one of the gems and treasures of the los angeles scene so it's super cool that you're on the podcast uh i appreciate it um thank you thank you very much for saying all that appreciate it let's let's go to the beginning you were born in el salvador correct that's correct uh yeah i was born in el salvador in uh, november of 1979 and um I came to the United States with my mother in, I, it would have been, let me see, and from December, January, February, March, April, May. it would have been like around May of something like that, May of 1980. Okay. And, uh, and then, yeah, we settled in LA, but you know, the, the 
interesting part of that story is that, you know, my, my mom was able to come with papers and legit and everything because my grandmother had been here because my aunt had been here. So Hmm. everything was in the works for my mom, but for my father and I, actually, it was really difficult to get the paperwork done. So, um, and I mean, this was also because literally 1979, 1980 was, you know, there was, that's when the, I mean, the war went for on for a very long time, but yeah. that was a, mo- that was a moment of a, of a lot of an exodus of people from El Salvador. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause it, it was getting really, really gnarly and very, very dangerous. Um, what part of, so my, I'm sorry, what part of El Salvador, uh, El Salvador is your family from? Uh, so my, my dad is from Chalchuapa, which is in Santana, okay. um, which is where the Tasumales, the Mayan temple. Mm-hmm. And then my mother, um, her her mother came from, also from, from the Chalchuapa area, and her father, my, my grandfather, came from, I believe it was the Santa Tecla area. But my mother grew up in the city, in the in San Salvador, like, properly right in the middle of it. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I asked that um, not with, like, any kind of, like, peer pressure, because, uh, you know, some people just don't know, and I think that's totally fine as well. So uh, I just want to make that clear <laughs> to people listening. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, totally. I mean, I think, you know, we have, and we can obviously talk about this at length, but, you know, I think um, people like me, we have a, or I should just say for myself, I mean, the experience of being a immigrant, becoming as a baby, but then not being a citizen, and then being a citizen, like that yeah. whole thing really screws up your mind Absolutely. on some other on some very tricky levels. But yeah, so the, the story is that, you know, my mom came to TJ, actually. So she flew into TJ because she could have her papers to come over, but she didn't have the papers to bring me over. So I was actually brought into the country by my tia, who was uh, a citizen at that point, or I think a resident. Okay. And she was, she was married to an American. So, you know, they brought me in as their baby. So, mm. I was, and I was not their baby. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a moment of, um, of risk that my, my parents and my aunt and my, everybody who was involved really, really, it was really risky. I mean, compared to other people's stories, you know, crossing yeah. in way more dangerous ways, like my way is probably, you know, probably the safest, the easiest mm-hmm. in a way. But, um, but yeah, you know, there was there was a level of risk there. It was it was actually, you know, it would, could have been really bad for all of them if, if yeah. something would have they would have gotten caught. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm glad it didn't go bad. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad it didn't. And uh, so so then what happens is I was a I was a um, back then we were uh, resident aliens. We I remember having the resident alien card, mm-hmm. and then I went from resident alien to permanent resident, and then. I became a citizen, luckily, like right on the eve of my 18th birthday. Um, so I am a naturalized citizen now. That's awesome. Um, yeah. That's super cool. And congrats for that. It's nuts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, it's been a, it's been a blessing because I've, I, you know, there are, I've been able to travel and I mean, and that is something that absolutely is really unfair that many people who are literally exactly the same as me and have a very similar story mm-hmm. to me um you know they can't travel they can never return back to their country so i mean obviously there's a lot of um it's a mess and it's really unfair and uh you know especially now with I, the, with the current with the current administration it's it's a total mess totally agree unfair is an understatement uh, the way these yes. people are being treated, um, yeah. Sheesh. Okay, so so you 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 moved here. You were you grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I grew up in um, the North Hollywood area. That's where I spent most of my childhood, like North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. How was that? Um, How was that? How was that growing up as a kid? Um, you know, it was cool. I was um, I was a really nerdy kid, and thankfully. I was seen as a nerdy kid by my um, teachers and partly was the, it was the thing where I was, I was really basically notorious for all of elementary school for like never being quiet. Like I had a really hard time being quiet and I had a really hard time um, just not 
like um, you know talking back and all this stuff. But and but one of the benefits of that, thankfully for me, was that in elementary school I was I was always trying to do everything like super super fast, and I think I really annoyed the teachers. And then they <laughs> they luckily you know because it could have gone the other way, right? It could have gone. Yeah. They annoyed me and I just end up in like the whole, you know, detention system and all that yeah, terrible stuff yeah. that happens. But for me, it was more like they they saw that I was uh, just like, again, you know, just probably whatever it was. They saw something nerdy in me. So I was able to go into a magnet program early on. So I was I, I was in the valley. I went to um, uh, elementary school in North Hollywood. But then by the second half of elementary school, I was going to a magnet program, which was um a total weird uh cultural shock how do you how do you feel about that because i i had a similar experience uh like around fifth sixth grade i i i was uh moved over to a magnet system or i don't know what you call it now as an educator like for you and your perspective like how do you feel about that like how do you Um, see that whole experience well, you know, with the hindsight I have now as an adult, the magnet system that I was a part of, and this was the, it was the highly gifted magnet. It was an IQ test-based magnet system. Um, I could tell you lots of things. First of all, the IQ tests themselves um, are, at least in that day, when I was, and this was a long time ago, they were given in English, hmm. um, and they were not given in Spanish. So that was already not okay and not good um the and i remember the other thing about the iq test is it really also required a lot of things that were like cultural biases that you could also read into and i mean a lot of this stuff has been studied as well that there's a lot of cultural bias in these tests yeah absolutely but but i had the benefit of i had grown up with my cousins who were uh who were half white so i spoke english without an accent because Mm -hmm. of my cousins and so I also had this like kind of a I had a I had an I guess you could say an accelerated vocabulary mm-hmm. in a way because I spoke I spoke like a in in quotes like a typical kid do you know what I mean right 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 I didn't I, I didn't sound quote like an immigrant which I mean all this is terrible stuff but you know yeah I, yeah, I know so, what you're talking about yeah so some somehow I was able to get into this um, I was able to communicate in the way that the uh, you know, quote unquote, correct way I should communicate. So, but anyway, so the tests were, that was something weird about the tests. The other thing that I would say now with the hindsight is that, you know, those magnet programs were completely, completely an example of um, like class privilege and white privilege, Hmm. like completely, because Hmm. um, almost every single student in those in the highly gifted magnet program and there was only a few elementaries and few middles high and few high schools that had it um you know there was no latinos in that program and it was and i mean that right there should have been a glaring red flag for the entire district because you know our schools that i was that i was you know my neighborhood schools were you know, 98% Latino, mm-hmm. you know, or, right. or what Latino, Chicano, Hispanic, Central right. American, whatever, whatever the term was then. Yeah. That's who, that's who we were. Yeah. Um, and yet the magnet schools would be in the same neighborhoods, but the magnet schools had, you know, one student who was maybe Latino and they had many Asian students. They had, and they had almost all white students and, and students from affluent families. So, it was a it was a huge culture shock for me on many many levels because I was like, whoa, I'm like the only Latino kid in this class. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing would be like, whoa, all these kids are like wearing the most expensive clothes yeah, ever. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and at that point, my parents were both um, working. My mother was was working as a teacher's assistant at that time, and my dad was working as a uh, also kind of like as a teacher for uh, for a nonprofit school for like the Head Start program. Yeah. So, you know, they weren't they were working and they had they had good jobs. But I mean, we were, you know, we we all lived in one room at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, my brother, you know, so it's it was it was like a complete, complete shock because, you know, these kids lived in mansions like legit mansions. No, I completely understand uh, when I started attending a magnet school. 
that's when I started going to like meeting, like having friends that had these like enormous homes and, and like in communities that I'd never been into. And I was just like, geez, like this is a different way of life. But like, you know, I, I'll, I'll admit that at the time I didn't really make the connection between the cultural disadvantages that the system had set in place. I was just like, what the hell? Like, this is a whole nother like world that's like literally maybe a mile away from where I grew up. I grew up. So I totally, totally. I totally understand that shock and the uh, seeing that for the first time. So as, as you're growing up, I'd like to ask you, um, is there anything like creative that's like, that's like, like brewing in your mind or, or are you creating at this time? Are you writing songs? Like, what are you listening to? Um, like what's the foundation for the creative person that you've, that you've become or have you always been this person? Um, well, you know, I, I creatively wise, I'd say, uh, in the beginning as a kid, it was like, I really liked, you know, drawing and like comics and stuff. And my, my dad was always like an illustrator and used to draw stuff all the time. So we had, well, there was a connection around art and like illustration, drawing comics and stuff. But musically, I'd say the, the bug for music, uh, really started to, to hit me in like middle school. Um, and I got into, uh, I mean, back then, like Metallica was like the hugest band in the world, you know? And so it was like, so it was like Guns N' Roses and stuff. So I got into those bands and, um, in particular, because I was into metal a little bit Mm -hmm. at that point, I started to hang out with some kids who also were into metal and we like, you know, it was like my, my first band, but it wasn't even a band. I mean, we just like hung out. I think twice and we, you know, played instruments together mm-hmm. um, was when I was in, um, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. And that was also, that also had to do with me having an instrument because it was like, Oh, let's start a band. You have a, a thing to play, you know, like super simple. And I had, I had uh, bought a guitar, a bass guitar from my elder cousin who was like a metalhead. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, yeah, def- so there was this thing about like my cousin being a metalhead and being into Zeppelin. And he was also like a super deadhead at that point. Nice. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't understand any of that. All I knew is that he liked Led Zeppelin yeah. and that he had a, had an, had a bunch of like Pink Floyd records at his, at his, in his room. Okay. And um, so he sold me a bass. He taught me how to play a little bit. And then that from, so now that I had a bass, I could play with the metal kids, you know, like once or twice. And, um, Metallica recorded, um, one of their biggest records in North Hollywood, right? Is that correct? (laughs) That's true. And actually, I think I know what studio it, it changed names, but I was watching, I was funny enough. I was watching Metallica documentary and it actually is on the same street um where one of my first bands practice which is really just silly you know just like yeah, yeah. that valley valley stories but yeah they Wait, did they, is they that did. over there by the 24-hour fitness on uh i forget the name of the street it's like one of the 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 cool like art district streets over there right am, am i am i mistaken or is that um well you might you might be correct but i i think i saw i'm trying to think of which which Metallica documentary or something, but I, you know, recently I saw one, I want to say it was actually, there's a smaller music studio. Um, that's on. If you're, are you from the Valley? Did you grow up in the A1A? Uh, no, but I'm familiar with some of it. I want to say it's actually on Woodman and, um, something like Woodman and Burbank. It's a smaller, studio i, I believe i see okay but, no yeah that's not what I, i'm thinking of yeah yeah but if but if if you're if i might be incorrect because i remember just looking at a picture of them talking about it on the documentary it also could have been what you're saying more on the lancashire area yeah that and like yeah yeah it could know, have been there people talk a lot like people just say shit sometimes like you can be in an alley smoking a cigarette and somebody's like yeah that's where metallica recorded an album and it could be totally false <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> yeah um but yeah, so you you started jamming with the with the metal kids with the with the deadheads and like what what what's going through your mind at this point? Well, you know, I mean, this was like my first my my you know barely just like thinking about playing an instrument and like you know um 
in middle school barely understanding it and getting into music but it was uh it wasn't until i got into high school that it that i actually joined my first band where we played shows okay and we be- we became part of a, a little scene mm-hmm. and so this was in north this was in north hollywood and the band uh formed i think in either 95 or 96 okay. and we played the talent shows obviously yeah, yeah. but what, what what was happening at that moment and this is the this is the part where it really like exploded was there um so in north hollywood and this would be 96 97 98 okay um there was a there was a little uh theater that was like a a, play, a little playhouse where they would do you know where actors would do their plays and stuff it was on um i believe it's lancashire um I'd have to, would have to, I might be saying this the wrong street name, but basically, okay. you know, that, that thing that they call the NoHo Arts District. Right, right. You know, yeah. Back then, back then it was not an arts district. It actually was a street that had a few independent theaters, like three of them. And this was one of them. And when I say independent, they were, you know, they were real little and yeah. they were not, there was no big money there. It was, it was people's passion projects. Yeah. yeah. So there was, so it was really cool and it was again also at that point north hollywood was not developed there was no metro there was a lot of abandoned businesses there was a lot of rundown stuff like it was a completely different city it's still a shock Um, to me some like i it literally just occurred to me not even like like less than a year ago that that's the arts district in 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 north hollywood like i had driven by it so many times and it just it never really registered in my mind until someone had to like literally like point it out and said, "This is the art district. What are you talking about?" Because I still have those old uh, like images of of the North Hollywood area like that that I saw as a kid. So it's like it, it it just took me a while to like really register all that. Oh yeah, I mean they 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 you know they did a huge facelift on that place. I, I mean I've, you know back then in the in the nine, late nineties, I remember the cool thing about North Hollywood was that you could skate and I was never a good skateboarder, but I had friends who were, um, that you could skate all the handrails in North Hollywood mm. and you wouldn't get caught because there wasn't that many people walking around. Right. 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 You, you know, yeah. there was like, so it was like this thing about, there was like a famous like rail, a uh, staircase with a rail, like on the corner of, of Lancashire and I don't know wh- whatever it is, but, it was like in, it always was in the, the skate magazines and all of us would nerd out about it. And it, the reason was because it would take forever for the cops to come bust you for that because they were busy somewhere else in, in the valley and no one cared. It was, you know, again, completely different world. Absolutely. But so and, and at that moment, late 90s, there is a place called the Raven Playhouse. OK. Which was next door to the original smell as well. OK. Um. So the smell got its start in the valley and right there, literally they were like next door to each other. There was like a Thai restaurant. There was a smell, which was like at that point was like an art gallery slash underground space. Mm -hmm. And then next to that was the Raven, which was a theater. But the guy who ran the theater was like who he he was actually now that, you know, as an adult, he was really cool Mm -hmm. because he really took a lot of risks because he would have a lot of punk shows there. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I don't, I mean, he was nuts to do that. And if you can consider it now, you know, like with all the liabilities and stuff. But um, what had happened was that was an available venue. And we had a music scene that was really like bursting, a Latino music scene, yeah. um, bilingual music scene in the late 90s. And, um, you know, it reflected, uh, I think, a lot of what was happening, you know, globally. Like, obviously, you know, bands like... Um, you know, I think like Manan, Caifanes were huge then as well. You yeah, know what I mean? Totally. And they, but and they were also. I think that that actually was a was one of the for me now. In, you know, in my age now, looking back, I think that was one of the first moments where like, you know, Latinx music was really hugely successful and popular. Yeah, it was for everybody. Yeah, it was. Def- you know? It was cutting through. You could hear it like on the streets. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, that inspired a lot of the, the students and the kids that I was with in, in my high school. So um, there was actually a, a, one of one of our fellow high schoolers and Myra, uh, she was kind of like the 
the godmother of the scene because she was really organized mm -hmm. and she knew she knew everybody in the in in the high school who was a musician and she would set up the shows mm -hmm. so she was like our booking agent but i mean again there was no agent there was no sure. money the, you know all of this was you know this is a she was a, a 16 year old who's like you know calling the guy and saying yeah. hey we're gonna have a show yeah those but, people are you know, very we, important though <laughs> those people are important. so crucial yeah super important myra is is very very important for a lot of a lot of our mu musician friendships there so she would book shows and there was bands um there was a band called la pulga mm -hmm. there was a, a band called senora equis okay um there was another band that came because we also would play with bands from others other high schools who were kind of in the punk scene yeah. kind of in this other weird scene um there was a band called the americanas okay. there was a band called um toto not toto rain in africa toto right, right. <laughs> but it was t-o-a-d toad dash o and then there was another group called um uh tijuana bibles okay. and from this group of people, from this group of bands that I'd mentioned, one one of the musicians in this group um, was David Green, who had ended up um, forming Los Abandoned. I don't know if you mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. They were pretty big in LA, like a little later into the 2000s. And um, one of the other musicians in this pile of musicians that we we were all were together was uh, Eva Gardner, who is a uh, she is like a, a really famous bassist now because she's been Pink's bassist okay. for forever she has like she has her own like fender guitar that's like the eva fender signature series very nice um which is crazy so but the point was that there was like this this uh it's like really fertile group of musicians some of them were in high school some of them maybe were like you know their first year of college some of them were older people who'd come by um and you know we'd play shows with them but um yeah so there was all this energy around there and i was in a group called no skills at the time mm -hmm. And we were, you know, we had, we had a good, we had a good quote following, you know, I mean, yeah. people, friends, friends who would come to our shows and, um, we were playing a mix of like funky stuff and, uh, kind of like reggae ska stuff. Cause I was also really big then and also kind of punk and metal at the same time. Absolutely, so at yeah. that, po at that point, that was my first band, but I was actually just a singer. I wasn't actually a musician. Hmm. Um, I was just the singer and, um, and I was start that's when I started to write songs. What I so, remember yeah. I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off. What I remember no, mostly no mostly about like the early two thousands and and like the scene on a local slash underground level is that the San Fernando Valley was really vibrant. Like it had more of a pulse than anything in, in like LA proper, I guess you would call it. Uh did like did you notice that as well? Because I always remember having to go into the valley for things. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I reflecting on how many shows there were and on the level of musicianship uh, and the fact that we were really, you know, since so, so I lived in in the valley and I went to North Hollywood High School. So, like, it was my local situation. You yeah. know, I didn't have to drive far to get there necessarily but we had bands who were coming in from uh, hamilton high school right right or or from loxa and now these were kids loxa. who yeah yeah <laughs> who were like you know maybe some of these kids were like real quote-unquote jazz musicians like they studied it they knew how to play everything you know yeah, yeah. but but they would meet us in the valley for these shows with you know and they were playing with bands with others you know other kids who like you know they never studied music and they, you know right. they've never read music or anything so there was a really it was a really it was i think you're right i mean i never i, I couldn't really say because I, I didn't live in another part of la but yeah. i know that we brought people to valley and i mean at, and obviously at the same time the smell was 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 starting off and yeah. you know the, the first year first couple years of the smell i went to like uh, few shows in the first couple years um because i didn't really i didn't really know anybody from that scene but mm -hmm. you know if you go back and you look at their at their records of it you know they had some pretty 
crazy bands come through those first couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you, and like we saw, like, I remember one night we saw, I believe, and this is, I might be not the right memory of where and when, but I do believe we saw unwound. We saw them loading wow. into the, into the venue. And then years later I was like, Oh, that was unwound. When I find, <laughs> when I finally realized who they were, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause, yeah. cause the, the smell crowd was older than us. They were like, they were more adults and they were obviously playing music that was, you know, even more edgy than the shit we were involved the stuff, excuse me, yeah. the stuff that we no, were involved cool. you, in. You can, you can curse on here. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, there was, there was energy. There was a lot of mojo in LA. You know what, what I will say too, is I remember back then, um, there was also just like a lot of, there was the, the all ages thing was very, was very important. Yes. And absolutely. So there was there was more of them, and if I don't remember the names of all of them, but I remember there was a place called Dizzy Debbie's mm-hmm. that was that was like a punk and all kinds of music place that was in. Uh, it was on. It was kind of like in the, the like Wilshire and La Brea area. Okay. So it wasn't like a. It was like in a fancy neighborhood, but it was actually a. I want to say it was. Uh, it was a bar that that. On certain nights, they had they let kids do shows. You know, okay, okay. Um, there was also the Cobalt Cafe the Cobalt in the Valley. Cafe, yeah, went there many a times. And again, that was huge. You know, they had so many bands, so many weekends in a row, all the time. Um, and it was all ages. And yeah. then there was in Santa Monica, there was the Alligator Lounge. Ah, yes, 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 yes. And I think they had they had some days were you know all ages. You know, I think LA is doing well as far as like, like on a on a macro level of the scene. I think it has done well for itself over the last I don't know ten fifteen years. I think it's it's really developed a lot of other things and and has allowed. I use the word allowed, but it's not like they had a choice. But allowed certain um, creators and and artistic people to really excel um, appropriately. But one of the things that I actually I've always like paid attention to is that the all ages venues have really like diminished over the years. Uh, Cause you're naming all these venues and some of these don't exist. I think they all don't exist. Right. I, the cobalt's Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Cobalt, uh, I, I heard, I heard the cobalt's been closed for like five or five years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I can think of a few other ones that used to allow all ages shows that didn't last more than three months. And then, you know, to me as a kid that was super important uh but i don't i don't think there there are many of those available now uh i could be wrong though no i I don't think you're wrong i mean i think there definitely aren't i mean the smell is one of like the last ones there is um and i mean not all not only you know not only all ages but it just in general um places where you can have underground music whether whether they even are real actual underground places like you know they they don't really they haven't really existed in the last and i would say that this is something that's been happening for about the last five years Mm -hmm. there's there's been a a big um a big disappearance of those places and i mean all that has to do obviously with like you know, if the when when rent continues to go up, right. you know, no one can afford to have their little gallery store. Sure, you know what sure. I mean? Absolutely. You can, yeah. you just you can, you can't do it anymore. So yeah. it's like gentrification, the high cost of rent, and I mean, I also do think that there was a significant um, uh, police and fire department crackdown of mm. underground spaces. Ah. There was this place on Sunset. I don't know if you were ever familiar with it like near the West Hollywood area called, I think it was called Top Fuel, which was a hangout for um, uh, people recovering from addiction uh, that after hours became a music venue um, where it was all ages and they didn't, didn't have a door cover, but they, you know, they accepted donations and it all went to this, this, uh, this organization that helped recovery. Were you familiar with that one, with that venue? Top, I think it was called mm. Top Fuel. I don't, I don't. Top fuel. No, I don't remember that. It didn't last um, long at all. Like, I don't even think it lasted a year, but yeah, that's to your point. It's just, it's, it's difficult to hold spaces like that in the city. 
Um, yeah, it's it's something that you know you either have to have someone who's like literally rich and doesn't care about losing rent every month and wants to do it, or you have to have a place that has affordable rent, which is like literally impossible. You yeah, know? Yeah, totally. So. So, so, yeah, so you're 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 maneuvering through this uh, the San Fernando Valley, this 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 like buzzing scene that's happening, um, and how how long did you did did this go on before you started the idea for Sister Mantos? Well, I'd say that the the this this scene in the valley was probably. I'm, if I had to, if I had to put numbers on it, I guess it'd probably be like between like '95 to maybe like 2001 ish. Okay. Like it was, it was short. It might even been only to the year 2000. Like, and a lot of that had to do with you know I was part of the generation of people who were in bands. So like when yeah. we graduated high school, like the year or two after we graduated high school, you know some people just got jobs or, right. or, or like, and also back then kid people were having kids really young. Yeah. Some people had kids. Um, some people went to the military, you know, like real, real stuff that happens to also to kids who are not necessarily all from rich families. Right. And there was some right. kids in there who were from affluent families for sure. But there was also a lot of like working class musicians who were, you know, you know, so their lives changed. So I think there was, it was like probably around the, yeah, the, the 2000s probably when the early 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 2000s when that scene kind of started to to die down um what ended up happening for me is i was going to ucla at that time um from 97 to 2002 so i was in a couple other bands um throughout that time period mm -hmm. But I was, and then I kind of switched more to, I guess, like play, playing guitar or playing bass, but being more in, in like punk bands. Okay. Um, so for me, it was, it, to be honest with you, I've like, I've kind of never stopped being in bands mm -hmm. since like 95. That's awesome. Um, I've taken maybe a year off or two, but only by chance or because of whatever. But I, I have consistently uh, been in bands um so my my last band quote unquote because there was many of them but the last one that i was in was uh was like in the year probably like 2003 to 2005 it was a band called uh fucking a okay <laughs> and we, we were a um kind of like grungy surfy punky experimental band okay and um the the band identified as like a queer band so we had um you know that was part of our politics and also like the the events that we would play and we would support um but it was because of being in that band and being and had having been in bands for so long um that's when i was like i'm tired of carrying this amp <laughs> and it was really it sounds so silly but it what kind of amp were you carrying? Well, oh, I mean, because I used to play out of like a, a 412 Marshall cab with a huge head on oh, it, shit. you know? Okay. That and pedals and a, and a guitar. Like, Is it like, you know, I, what series? Like the, the JCM? Well, no, I used a, a Music Man 150 head. Ah, uh, okay. Because I, I, I always like the vintage kind of brittle sound. Yeah. Um, kind of like, yeah, surfy sound. But, you know, this was something that, you know, you literally would fill up your entire car yeah. or your friend's car, totally. you know, and I didn't always, I didn't always have a car. So it was like, um, you know, it became such a, a physical hassle. Absolutely. And I think, and so, so, but again, I loved it. I loved being in those bands. And I, I actually, a lot of those musicians that I've played with throughout all these bands, I still have played with them now. And in the sister Montos band, like That's awesome. we've, we're all still friends. Um, but it was it was because of it was because of that because I guess the physicality got got kind of got me bogged down a little bit. I don't blame and you. Also, I I feel like I still have back pains from carrying amps as a kid. Like I, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I would I do believe I threw out my back at some point in like two thousand and four or five. Yeah, and or maybe two thousand six or seven. I don't know. It was a long time, but I it was one of those moments that I was like why am I carrying this big thing? 
Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> and, and you know, and I and like I remember having to park to go to school, but I would have to play the show at night, so I'd have to figure out a way to put my amp in the car. Yeah. But like, I had to make sure no one steals it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like so all this stuff, um, and so okay, so that's happening, and at the same time. While I'm at UCLA, I was uh, introduced to computer music mm-hmm. because I had never, I have, well, I didn't even, you know, back then we didn't have computers. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Back then, like having a computer, you were a, you were a, a special computer person if you had a computer. Which I mean, nowadays that sounds literally like a foreign land. Yeah, no, it's the truth though. It's 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 absolutely true. Uh, so yeah, so you're introduced to uh, computer music for the first time. I'm introduced to computer music by my friend Earthen, and this is in 2001 to 2002 um, as I'm finishing up college. And once Earthen shows me computer music, and I'm like, oh wow, you can make really loud, noisy stuff with just this little laptop, you know? And, and this is also when laptops were becoming more popular too. So, you know, yeah. like te- technology and me are, we, we've kind of had this, like we're, you know, it's like a, I don't know, symbiotic relationship. Like uh-huh. the developments have occurred and, and I've been in line with them and I've, yeah. you know, I've been on board. So we started to make electronic music and we started to make beats. Okay. So, as I, I learned how to make beats and I've, I had always been into hip hop, uh, like Cypress Hill was super huge when I was a kid. And they were yeah. also a really big part of our identity growing up as like brown kids. Cause yeah. they were, you know, they were bilingual, you know, it was huge. It was like a, a huge cultural moment for, for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, I feel like, so, I, 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 I'm, I feel like they don't get enough credit for that. Maybe because of their stoner image or, you know, I don't know, but I just, I feel like in some circles, they don't get enough credit for that. No, you know, they don't. And I, I, did you see that new documentary on Netflix about the Mr. Cartoon and the, the photographer? Uh, LA Originals? Yeah. I loved, LA. It. I loved it. And, and you know, they, and they mentioned, they mentioned how, you know, Cypress Hill was like the biggest band in the world at that moment. Yeah. And, and they really were. And, you know, I remember, I mean, I remember it too. I could literally remember like the day that I wore my, um, cypress hill shirt that said latin lingo on the back you know and that was like it was like so cool like to see ourselves represented in music right shout out to southgate yeah shout out to i mean for real cypress hill forever like big huge yeah huge influence on me musically yeah um you know and uh, politically too oh absolutely i just want to tell a little story uh because you know you live when you live in la you as cliche as this may sound, you do run into celebrities like all over the place. I remember I was walking uh, back to my car from a ro- from a show at the Roxy, and I'm walking with my friends, and I and I smell this like crazy, like intense, like marijuana scent, and I'm just like, wow, that is very potent. Where is that coming from? And I walk. And I walk, and then eventually I see Be Real having dinner on a patio with this gigantic joint. And I'm like, ha, there it is right there. <laughs> so, yeah, Be Real. Yeah, Be, yeah, be Real, Send Dog, uh, Mugs, they influenced so many people. Yeah. So many. So, and, and, uh, and, and Bobo on drums, which also then, you know, I, I think it was them. And the Beastie Boys, and I mean, both of those bands have some things that we maybe don't like, because I mean, lyrically, both of those bands have had a history of saying stuff that's misogynist and not cool. Yeah. Um, so taking that very much as as a fact, but there, there's another thing going on, which was they were both um, they were both doing this thing where they were like making music and kind of letting you into the history of music and the relationships to jazz or yeah. other, or wh- where they got their samples from or oldies. Like, so uh, for me, it, for me, the, those two bands, um, uh, along with a lot of other bands, but mm-hmm. they really got me deep, deeper and deeper into music. So, you're, but yeah, so go ahead, go yeah, ahead. so I'm making, so I'm making beats with my friend Earthen 
and I've, I've, I've just, you know, I discovered that I love making beats and that it's really fun. And I, I got my first drum machine after that too, um, because I was so into it. And then I was also in another group at that point as well, aside from the kind of like more, um, garage surf group, I was in a, a group called Voy, okay. which was a group with my fellow art students. Um, <laughs> and in that group, I, that group is actually kind of, so it, you know everything kind of melts together but in that mm-hmm. group i was making the beats and then playing the bass which is very much what i still do today okay um and but we were more of like what you would call a quote art band because we had an uh, our singer was like a performance artist who um super cool who uh had studied um, had almost become a preacher but then became a super gnarly artist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so he had this uh very powerful singing voice and uh, the keyboard player michael bauer um is still a friend of mine now and tom tom holmes is uh the was the singer all we're all, all still friends um but that was like a different thing so we were making like pop songs okay. but they were they were kind of experimental in a way so so yeah so the all that happened so i had like my punk training and then i had my my beats training i was starting to write songs you know with many of these different people um i had been a singer quote unquote in high school you know there had always been a thread of of politics throughout the whole thing um uh also you know things discussing like gender identity and um you know so there was a there's these threads running through all these bands and then yeah then it was the thing of me being a high school teacher having kind of less time to be in bands because it was, it was, it was a, always a, a tough job at that point. Yeah. Um, and that's when I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to sit here with my computer at, at night and try to figure stuff out. And I was actually, it was a really, I was a really bummed out person at that time. I was like a pretty depressive time. Um, so the music that I was making was also like this, uh, it was like a, it was like a therapeutic yeah. uh, thing that then just be literally became kind of like my, uh, you know, like a good, a good practice. It became like my, my daily ritual. A lot of great art comes from, uh, unfortunately, those, those times in, uh, in our lives. And it's, it's so interesting that you say that because when I listen to the Sister Mantos records, I just like, I put it on my living room and I'm just like, I'm like dancing. You know what I mean? There's so much rhythm and like joy to it. For for most of it, because then it, it, there are other elements that are psychedelic and are very punk rock, and I think that's for me personally, that's what keeps me hooked to Sister Mantos, because I consider it a punk like uh, a punk band, you know. I consider S- Sister Mantos to have the punk ethos, to, like the the punk attitude, and to just break through whatever kind of like creative structures or limitations or parameters that anyone wants to set. And I, for one, appreciate that. So I say that to say that, yeah, it came from a place in time where you probably weren't feeling awesome, but I think it has translated to so much more over time. And that is the beauty of art. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For new music, upcoming events, and Normandy Records merchandise, visit our website at normandyrecords.com. Thanks for listening to the Normandy Records podcast. 